I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, all right, well, this is going to be really fun um, because this is like, I mean, this year alone, the, I don't know how many times now, but we're sitting down with another honorable person. <laughs> so much honor. So much yeah. honor. The Honorable Zach Churchill, um, uh, a Canadian MLA from right here in Nova Scotia, serves as a member of the Nova Scotia House of Assembly for Yarmouth. Uh, Zach, first of all, I want to say, I, like, I, we, we've talked to so many friggin' physicians that we're just waiting for our honorary doctorate. Honorary? Honorary doctorate. <laughs> um, and now I, th- I feel like we've, we've spoken to so many, uh, politicians that, uh, we're due for like our honorary honorable. We can make that title. happen. <laughs> we can make that happen. For sure. Woo! Here we go. Well, there you go. Uh, it's in stone now. It can, it can be enshrined in law. <laughs> That's cool. Zach, welcome, dude. Can so you get us a knighthood? <laughs> no, I can't do that. That's got to be, well, I guess the king now. Ah, king Charles. Right, right. Third. We'll have to get cozy up to, to Charles. Yeah. Um, if, Zach, you, if you guys get in with him, let me know. Thanks for joining us, dude. This is going to be really interesting because, um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, in part, uh, you you sort have played a small but pivotal role in changing my life in a very big way. Um, and the reason I say that is because you were um, one of the many, many people that were um, responsible for eventually getting us to a point where we can see Tricafta in the hands of Nova Scotians living with cystic fibrosis. So mm-hmm. first of all, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very kind of you. Secondly, these, thick, these thick legs and that full uh, tummy are <laughs> all you. <laughs> Dude, quick funny little story. We were in Vancouver and uh, doing some live shows uh, earlier last week. And um, my buddy Mark, who was putting us up, he's been my best friend since high school. And I see Mark and he's like, how's it going, man? You look great. You still got that six pack? And I go, no. I pulled up my belly and his reaction was, oh. <laughs> so thanks, Zach. They all, go, they all go away eventually. It's, it's, uh, it's well, the, it's it wouldn't have you... if it wasn't for Tricafta. That's right. Oh, that's, uh, listen, man, that, that's awesome. That was something that was brought to my attention uh, by the CF community and, and advocates. Uh, we'd lost uh, two young people in Yarmouth mm-hmm. during my tenure as, as MLA. I've been there for 12 years, and I knew both of them really well, mm. fairly well. Um, and uh, when that was registered as a possibility and that we needed to make a move in Nova Scotia to get it approved, we were certainly really motivated to, yeah. to make it happen as quickly as possible. Now, um, at that point in time, you were acting as the Minister of Health Correct. for Nova yeah. Scotia? Okay. Interesting title. Interesting job. Um, you know, we just spoke to the the um, Honorable um, Carolyn, Carolyn Bennett. Bennett. 
Bennett, 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 Bennett. yeah, Bennett, um, who is the? Is it ever Bennett? No, it's never the federal <laughs> minister of mental health and addictions. Thank you very much, yeah, federal yeah, right. minister. So, what in in terms of your role as the as the minister of health for Nova Scotia, like what is that at that point? Because I know that's not technically your role now, but like, what does that role in, entail? You're you're responsible for the the healthcare system, essentially the the policy, legislation, and budget for the healthcare system. Easy. It's intense. <laughs> it's very intense. I went from uh, education to health, but it is such a rewarding uh, job yeah. to get in there. It's tough because you've got problems all over the place and you do have to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, communicating on the challenges and things like that. But you are in a position to really make some uh, mm. consequential decisions that yeah. can impact the lives of people. So I was quite, I've made this, I've said this before, but uh, Premier Rankin at the time put me there and I, I did want to kill him at first. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh my God, man, you're going to, I just got, I just had the crap kicked out of me for four years in education, yeah, yeah. Me help, but I got there and it was probably the most satisfying and rewarding work that I did in, in our eight years. Uh, yeah. in government. It's, it's such a, like, I mean, to, and, and to speak to the Tricapta bit again, I mean, that, I, I'm assuming that, that felt like a major win because uh, obviously we're so close with Jeremy and the CF community, you know, that hit very close to home. But it also strikes me that in, the, in healthcare being such a machine and there's always issues with healthcare and there probably will never be a time where the health minister provincial here federally is... Isn't pulling their <laughs> hair out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, is there a sense of like, kind of like dumpster fire after dumpster fire in that, in that job, just because by the nature of how big of a machine it is, you know, you're, you're kind of always pulling your hair out. Well, yeah. well, it's, there, there's always something happening, right? So you're dealing with emergencies every day. You're dealing with, you know, ambulatory responses. You're dealing with all the kind of system challenges in primary care. So people that don't, don't have a family doctor, mm-hmm. uh, you're dealing with labor shortages in the healthcare system. And, and that is going to result in, uh, some bad situations and, yeah. and not everyone's going to survive. And in the uh, pandemic as well. Which and, and then on top of that, you put, throw the pandemic in and mm-hmm. I was, uh, yeah, I was there during the, what, thir- I think the third wave, the Delta, the Delta wave of, mm. of, of COVID. So yeah, it's, it's very intense, but you've just got to be able to kind of focus on really what matters uh, and making the right decisions mm-hmm. that will have hopefully a short, medium and, and long-term impact. So <laughs> the trek after thing was really, was really exciting one for me yeah I, I feel like the the challenge like the thing that overwhelms me thinking about the healthcare system is that you can try to play a numbers game where you're gonna like you know look at the system and say where are the areas that i can have the biggest impact but the flaw in doing that is that to every individual person health is their most probably their most important thing and so you know you have people um like jeremy and probably other people who live with rare diseases or even rarer diseases where there's like access to a medication or something that, you know, could potentially help them or save them. But by nature of running the system in the, in the way that's going to serve the public interest at large, the best you'll inherently the challenge is like, Oh, you're going to start to miss some of those people. But like to those people, it's the most important thing. Yeah. And life and, and death you and your job, like you, I'm imagining you want to help them, but like, how do you try to, you know, balance that sort of decision making between trying to help the most amount of people, but try to help the people who urgently need help the most, even if, you know, they're, you know, only one or two people in the province that live with those specific conditions? Well, it's not easy. 
you know, so you, thankfully there are processes in place to help you kind of make decisions on, you know, what drugs are going to be approved and what ones you can approve in Nova Scotia. So in the Trikafta example, the federal government first has to approve it as a, as a medicine that can be used in Canada. Then there's a negotiating process with, I believe it's the Pan-Canadian Pharmacy Association. And then each province has to make a decision whether they're going to put it on what's called the formulary, which means it'll be available and, and covered in, in our province. Mm-hmm. And so that process, it, it does, you do look at cost benefit analysis. You do look at the efficacy of these drugs and how many people it can help. You, you do kind of have to put a lens on that because you do only have so many resources. Mm-hmm. 50%, almost 50% or more than 50% of the provincial budget. So 50 cents on every tax dollar is, is going into the healthcare system. Tons of pressure on that system. New drugs coming out all the time for you know cancer and, and various illnesses, and it's certainly not an easy yeah. thing to figure out. How uh, big is that pool? Like like you know uh, on a given day, how big is the sh- like the shopping cart of you know drugs that uh, are like on the table for for approval but need to go through that process um, at like on, on you know any given day. I mean, I can't give you an amount on that, um, but you do hear from people who are in the know because they either have a certain cancer or a yeah, certain yeah. condition or <laughs> illness, whatever. And they're like, listen, we need to get this. This could save my life. We need to get this this, okay. this covered. So so it's not like a list that you guys like wake up on a Monday and go, oh, there's like an extra 23 drugs on that list. It's 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 literally due to like the advocacy of others for you to get those put on well, your radar that can that can get it on the political radar for right, sure right. but you know the the public servants are looking at the the drugs that are approved by health canada gotcha. and and helping you know narrow down what the focus is going to be on the elected right. leadership to make decisions on that for sure how how challenging um and again just using track after because it's the thing that's most familiar to us and and obviously affects us the most closely with a drug like Trikafta that is so expensive what is how how much of a challenge is it to bring that to um, the province? And obviously, there's a collaborative um, process happening between different political parties and getting that approved. Um, how much of a challenge is it to say, "Hey, here's this drug. It's going to it's going to absolutely change. It's going to absolutely change the lives of the people that take it." Like, you know, Jeremy. I like, you know, 45 years old, maybe to who knows, 80. I don't know. Full, God, fuck. I hope not. Like going from drastically reduced life expectancy to, you know, maybe this, a similar life expectancy to the average person pretty much overnight. Yet it comes with this crazy price tag because there's so few people that relatively speaking that have CF. How much of a challenge is that to, to convince the, to, to, to go through that process? Well, honestly, it, it didn't seem like much of a challenge to me. Yeah. It was, we, we, we looked at the, you know, how effective this drug was, the impact it could have on life expectancy and, and, and quality of life. And I do have some kind of close connections with the CF community. Uh, you know, friends in, in Yarmouth, two, two young people we lost. The the Vallelies, I don't know if you guys know, Tim yes. and Agatha Val- Vallely, <laughs> right? Man, they are just the best. They're, they're unreal. They're unreal. <laughs> full of love. Just so full of energy. Yeah. 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 Um, and s- they really are special. And so, um, you know, the, the, 
the 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 story was right on this. This was the right decision to make. And and again, I, I wasn't the one that eventually got to finally approve it, but we started the process. And there yeah. was this really nice moment in the legislature when I got to ask the the current minister of of health, uh, Michelle Thompson, who's you know not, obviously not a member of our party, if the work on the trichafter approval was going to continue and yeah. and be finalized because we didn't get a chance to do that. We yeah. we lost the election before we were able to finalize that. And, you know, she got up and said yes. And it was this really, really nice moment where mm-hmm. everybody clapped and everybody mm-hmm. was happy and feeling really good. And, and you're like, yeah, this is the stuff that transcends the partisanship yeah, in the yeah. legislature. This is what it's all about. And there's been a number of moments like that. The other one related to health would have been the organ tissue donation legislation that Stephen McNeil, That's uh, right. Premier McNeil brought in. Yeah really incredible like i get a bit of goosebumps thinking about it one of my favorite one of my favorite things in canada honestly oh man Mm. oh you know that's going to save people's lives right and it's a it's a very easy thing and you're just up against you know a a bit of opposition to it but it's it's not really grounded in the right uh, i think um argument or 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 whatever you know Mm. this is going to save people's lives it's easy Mm -hmm. uh we are all going to go someday on you know fortunately yeah. or unfortunately and we are going to have tissue and organs in us that can be utilized for this so that was another moment where people were crying in there and mm. it moves from this kind of adversarial pit yeah uh where people are arguing and debating mm. to this moment where everyone's kind of like mm. brought together and, and that's on sort of things. a thing it's, that seems to be like especially nowadays seems to be something that's being more and more lost in politics is the ability to all go this is commonsensically that's a word the the way to go i mean not not just i disagree for the sake of disagreeing because you're on the other side or anything like mm-hmm, that but mm-hmm. like this is something that just makes yeah. total sense and it makes sense no matter whose mouth it comes out of yeah. and it makes sense for the people and let's do this and and yeah. to that point about like the decision to approve a drug that's so expensive like it's not like it it just comes down to you guys to you know kata says yeah this is this this drug is good and we we think that it's valuable so it's up to you guys to to decide whether or not you want to put it out there. There's there's another regulatory body that basically says, okay, we it's it starts with a P. I forget the name of it. I, I should remember this, but they, from what I gather, they they say, okay, Cadith has reviewed it and and have approved the drug in the country, and then we as as this regulatory body, whatever our name is, um, that's we, what Zach mentioned the we, pan, uh, pay, farm. What was it? I think you mentioned earlier that's that's involved in kind of the negotiation on the pricing. Yes. Right. And they're the ones that basically say, we think it is worth paying this. It's up now. It's up to the provinces to decide whether or not they want to take that on. Put it on the the formularies. That's right. Yeah. The formulary. Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, this one worked out really well on, on Trikafta and uh, uh, you know, it's, it's that stuff that makes it all worth it. You know, it's politics is a crazy business. I've been in it for 12 years now. Can I ask you, because so I know that I know that like when when the negotiations were happening early on um, and this did move quite quickly, like I was quite surprised how fast I got Trikafta because mm-hmm. I remember when it got approved in Canada, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe in like two or three years I'll have it. And I think it was like later that year. I mean, was, we started like, devising plans for yeah. like shitting on everybody to try and <laughs> yeah, to try and move yeah, it yeah. along i mean we yeah. were we were we were we, we were trying to organize a truck rally <laughs> to the capital <laughs> <laughs> we thought of it first um, um but so my, my question is um i know that like at that time you were you were the the health minister and then and then you know there was that switch around now you're in the opposition how much you know 
I don't know if you can talk to this or not, but like how much work had been done up to that point? And then how much work did it take for you to kind of nudge the opposition to actually take that step and 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 commit? Oh, the government, the government. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was in opposition. Yeah. Well, I only had like, I think I knew I had a very limited time in, in the health department. Yeah. Uh, I knew I was going to be there between four and six months. So I was very motivated oh, to move yeah. everything that, um, you know, I had an interest in advancing as quickly as possible. So like we expanded cancer care treatment opportunities in mm-hmm. Southwest Nova. That was really important for me as someone from Yarmouth. Uh, and this one was another one. So the, the expedited nature of how this happened, uh, the quickness of it, certainly had was related to like the political will to get this done and i certainly felt under uh, I, I knew i was under a tight timeline to do anything in that department uh, so we just wanted to move really quickly and we had really effective uh public servants in there that knew what levers we needed to push and and how to get things through the system more yeah. quickly than usual and yeah. uh, uh you know thankfully um after the the pc when they also continued with that and they right. saw the value of this and uh and 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 eventually made the final decision right so So. it didn't take it like it didn't take a bit of uh a bit of like encouragement from you uh uh, to yeah is it michelle uh thompson thompson uh you know were you like were you on the phone with her being like come on i fucking worked so hard on this put it forward is it really like house of cards yes (laughs) i mean some some of it is right like you do want to lobby and and you want to have good relationships with with people in all parties so that you you can get stuff done together Mm. and honestly like the system that does happen quite a bit you know and a lot of us are friends um, but no, it, it didn't to her, to, to her credit, it did not take a lot of lobbying. I think this right. might've been something that was on her radar. She's a nurse, right? She comes yeah, from right. the healthcare system and, uh, the public service, like the department of health would have been really lined up to get this thing done. Yeah. So it would have been on her desk and, you know, uh, she made the call to, to finalize it. And that was, uh, as I said, yeah, really dissatisfying, yeah, rewarding, rewarding, rewarding moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the most, I mean, one of the most satisfying moments of my life, of, of Jeremy's life <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. since I met oh, Jaren. Yeah. I mean, I remember I've, I've told the story a few times on the podcast, but I remember I met Jaren in 2011 <clears throat> and we were rooming up together at a yoga teacher training in Brazil of all places. And, and I remember Jared kind of explained to me what CF was and he told me about this kid in Toronto who was sort of this like science prodigy and. I don't know. If, I don't. I don't think this is. I'm not sure if this is related to Tricaftad in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, ten years down the road. But let's say it is. It's more. Say, it's a better say, story. Let's say yeah. it is. totally is 100. percent Okay, so yeah, totally 100. percent The 16 yeah. year old basically formulates <laughs> Tricaftad as a 16 year old. And uh, <laughs> school science fair. <laughs> it school was science, a school science, a school science fair. fair. Anyway, he he comes up with something <clears throat> that ends up scientists end up going. That's oh, so. That's the, I didn't know this this part of the story of Tricaftad. Okay, so so again, uh, we, like we could be wrong here, but, but okay, uh, but but uh, so so everyone take this with a big 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 grain assault but it was a, a number of years ago like over a decade ago this kid 16 year old kid super smart um he did a science fair project and i'm pretty sure the project was about the the notion of of modulator drugs which are which like trichapta falls under that umbrella or can be kaleidico mm. so these drugs that can like literally um uh you know correct or you know unfold the 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 malfolded protein that is what trichapta mm-hmm. does to like you know mm-hmm. n- not cure cf but like basically 
treat CF at the source. And he was essentially a young Elon Musk because he he designed the high-end version first that targeted the smaller percentage of the population with Kaleidico and Orkambi targeting like people with rare mutations yeah. everybody and then knows charge a premium for that everybody. yeah it's Everybody's like uh, you know you design the, the model s and the yep. first and everybody then, knows the, the, yeah. the business structure to tesla yeah exactly right yeah. so uh, and then and then once he built up a name in the market then he designed the one yes. that's more for the uh, more common gene anyway so he basically the, uh, he, he had done something that they thought was laying the foundation for the like decade down the road Oh, I found it. Um, there was hope. Issue where, yeah, it was like, oh, maybe this will become someday something that cures CF or quasi cures CF. And I remember thinking, I was meeting Jeremy, and he goes, "Yeah, my life expectancy is thirty. He was twenty three at the time, or or thirty five, or something like that." And uh, and I went, "Nah, hey, you're, you're gonna be, you're gonna be good." This, <laughs> this is literally, he. This is literally what it is. His name was Zach. Uh, sorry, Mar- uh, Marshall Zhang. Uh, 11th grade student at Richmond Hills Bayview Secondary School, and he received first place, obviously, uh, <laughs> at the 2011 Santa Fe Aventus BioTalent Challenge. Um, and <clears throat> at his mentor's lab, Zhang used the Canadian Cynet supercomputing network to investigate how two promising new compounds acted against the de- defective protein responsible for the condition. Uh, using computer simulations, he figured out how each of the drugs acted against the protein and discovered they acted on the protein in different spots, raising the possibility they could be used simultaneously without interfering with one another. Actually, that hate, is essentially I, exactly what Trikafta ended up being. Oh, wow. I, I hate this story because That's I know that it wasn't him. It was his mom or dad, whichever <laughs> one worked in the lab. And they were like, come on, <laughs> little buddy, we're going to yeah. pretend yeah. like you did this. I was going to say, that uh, certainly wasn't what I was thinking about in grade 11. <laughs> It's yeah, um, yeah, incredible. And though. also, when drugs. you know what second place was in that science fair, that shitty fucking Diet Coke and Mentos volcano, like, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, this guy is. Uh, that sounds like it should have won. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's incredible. That's, you, uh, you guys want to know what he does now? He is the CEO of a financial services company. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Totally. I, I would have figured he just like bought Pfizer. <laughs> oh, human they just ing- gave it to him. Human ingenuity, man. It's it's incredible. Like yeah. like pulling off the vaccine so quickly for COVID. Yes. Oh my another God. another feat. Uh, of course, that many people, uh, you know, yeah. think you know, think think differently about. But from from my perspective, and I think the perspective of of, of science and the evidence, uh, incredible. Yeah. That totally. we were able to pull this off. Yeah. You know? Absolutely fascinating. I, I was listening to um Ray Kur- uh I was listening to Ray Kurzweil last night on uh, Lex Friedman's podcast. You should you'll I mean you guys were both I've listen. already listened. I, already listened yeah, it's it. fantastic. Like you'll love it. Cool. Like a lot about like the singularity and you know AI sort of like taking over and 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 it's symbiotic. He's the guy that Google hired to come in and create AI for Google. Yeah, very like very futurist, very um um, forward-thinking person. Um, so he was talking about the vaccines, and he was talking about the the like computing power, the AI computing power that allowed us to create these vaccines so quickly. And he spoke to how so many people are upset, or maybe don't believe in the vaccine, or think that it was manufactured too quick. And the too quick to them was the ten-month period that it took to make the vaccine, test it, and everything. But he goes to actually make the vaccine took two days. It took two days of computing power to figure out what the vaccine needed to be. <laughs> and then the rest of the time was just testing it. Mm. And so the testing of it was really the, the time consuming part, mm. the making or the creating and the figuring out of what needs to be in the vaccine was like two days of a supercomputer going, this is what you need mm. to do. 
favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In terms of like coming into your position... um, you know, if you came into that same position as the health minister, I don't know, five years ago, obviously the, you know, your daily schedule and, uh, you know, itinerary of what it is you're focusing on would look very different compared to you coming in uh, during a, a global pandemic. Um, what, you know, like, do you, do you have a sense of like how your job changed in, in the face of that pandemic? Oh, you're, 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 I mean, you have to deal with the other things that you're looking at in the system. You yeah. Know, like the, the operations, the, the emergency challenges, all this sort of thing. But you have to be hyper-focused on, on the pandemic because it's impacting everything else. Yes. In the healthcare system, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's uh, yeah, life and death for a lot of people. Yeah. You're, and obviously, we you know, as a government, we were, you know, very focused on kind of preservation of life and, and protecting the system from the pandemic as best we could and had to make some real tough decisions that impacted and restricted people's mobility and, and behavior. Crazy. Um, but uh, we're seeing it now, uh, the more COVID in our hospitals, the more staff you have out, the more overrun our system is, the more people are going to be in jeopardy of not getting the supports they need if they have a heart attack, stroke, car accident. Yeah. So you really do have to focus on on that because it, it impacts uh, everything else. How stressful was it? Oh man, it's stressful for sure. You know, like and, compared to everything else you've done in politics, how stressful was it? Well, it was the it was probably the, it was you know probably the the height of that right just yeah. because it's it's intense. But you just get in the zone and you you get used to making the decisions and you try to make them for the right, for the right Mm -hmm. reasons. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's all you can do, but it's the, the virus moves so quickly. You know, we were looking at the Delta wave coming in and started to get a a few hints that, you know, something was happening again, Mm -hmm. epidemiologically. Um, and we had to react pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. but I was also there when we, when we rolled out the immunization plan, right. Which was really very cool. Yeah. Like a lot of logistics Mm -hmm. brought the military in to help with that. And, really utilized and we're the, I think the only province that did this where we had a centralized booking system and utilized the pharmacies. Right. Because yeah. we, we wanted to get um we wanted to get it in every community and they say decant, which means get, you know, get people vaccinated around yeah. the same level no matter where they were living. And that was all done through pharmacies. Yeah. My my favorite part about the immunization program was like seeing where immunization clinics are popping up it was kind of like spirit halloween like every year i'm, I'm like where's spirit gonna go like what what what, what kind of empty, empty building is this gonna end up in yeah. I, I got i got one of my shots at uh at like the at like the emptied out nissan dealership down on like kemp road and you got your yeah. second one around the back of that um that under the bridge under the bridge yeah. <laughs> that, wasn't a, yeah. that wasn't a vaccine yeah, it turned yeah. out that wasn't a vaccine um Oh well, <laughs> Zach, it was, it was a good night. I, I wanted to ask too, but like, like to piggyback on that question, Jared was asking about um, stress. Like, how do you how did how do you manage your mental health during that time? And in particular, like, I think of my mom um, 
when she graduated from university, she was a social worker and um, she was only able to do it for about a year. And then it just became too stressful for her. She felt that she was taking the work home and she ended up uh, no longer working in that line of work. And so I'm wondering for you, like, like given the fact that it's so much pressure and so much stress, like what, what do you do personally to be able to manage that stress load? The, well, you, you have to have your mindset in in the right area. So, uh, you know, I, not worrying as much about what people are saying about you really helps. Yeah. Right. So, (laughs) you know, I, if I, when I, in the earlier on in my career, I would have been reading, you know, what people were saying about decisions or, or me or my colleagues. And, and, you know, you just have to accept that everyone's going to have a different opinion based on their own stuff that's going on in their life. Totally. and I, I got try. I, I mean, I, I try to get my head to the point where it's okay. I have a duty. I need to focus on my duty to people and not their opinion of me. Yeah. And trying to have that philosophy, I guess, has has been helpful. But I certainly bring it home with me. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it's, it lives in my in my gut. Yeah. Um, how do you filter? How do you allow the right things to filter in? You I, well, looking at evidence. You know, okay, what 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 makes the most sense here um you do have to think what are the politics going to be around it who's going to be upset Mm. and uh you know we we've we get to a point as a government we're like well we're going to make the right decision and people are going to be pissed off and we're going to live with that yeah Mm -hmm. and we're going to we're going to explain it as best we can but it was it makes it more challenging when you're when you're doing it that way just because it's not fun having people angry at you or Mm -hmm. or upset right particularly if they're in your community and you know them and and stuff like Mm -hmm. that but at the end of the day that's where the reward comes in. Yeah. Like you're doing something of consequence. You know, this isn't just about hanging on to the job as long as possible. It's about what can we do while we're, while we're here. It's, it's cause you get to write laws. You get to invest large sums of, of public money. You get to restructure things. And like what I've loved so much about this line of work is, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to have that sort of impact mm-hmm. on my community or province or whatever, <laughs> uh, doing anything else. So, I mean, that's, that's where the reward is for me. So you focus on, okay, what's going to have the biggest impact? What's, going to work uh, short, medium, and long term because uh, we, we get pulled into these weird political, short, short-term political cycles. But mm-hmm. you do have to think long term and you make the right calls. Hopefully, um, hopefully it has the, the right outcome. Do you ever feel like you made the wrong call? Um, oh, for sure. I mean, nothing, nothing really is coming to mind where I had like a crisis of conscience or anything yeah. like that. Like m- most of the critiques I'd have about us during our time in government was probably how we were communicating things sometimes. Yeah, like yeah. Where you can get pulled into being... Uh, defensive in your posture and and or adversarial um and that's when things can escalate yeah you know and really you got to try to uh elevate a conversation not not escalate and then it's it's a bit it's a bit easier guys how about that i just got a politician to admit to uh, making our own (laughs) and being accountable for it we need more politicians that yeah that's that's a a rarity yeah zach hardball on sick boy podcast (laughs) i wanted to ask about i I know that is it is it um Crohn's that you? Ooh. Yeah, so I've, yeah. I have the diagnose, diagnosed with Crohn's when I was fifteen. I'm thirty eight now, so I've been twenty, like 22, 23 years. I'm, I'm curious how that experience, um, being a patient in the healthcare system, mm. informed um, your politics, or if it did. Well, I mean, the, the healthcare system was there for me. You know, it diagnosed me relatively quickly within a number of months. I knew what was going on, and. Um, been lucky to have a good GI doctor in Yarmouth, Dr. Prabhu. Shout out to him. He's mm-hmm. getting, he, he won't leave because they haven't found a replacement for him yet. He's in his seventies. Oh, that's sweet. But I uh, was very lucky to have good care and, and very lucky to have like a mild uh, so far 
it's a progressive disease, but it's uh, to have kind of, uh, you know, mild, mild version of it that mm-hmm. um, hasn't, once I was on medication, and I'm still on medication, like I've been on the same, uh, same medication for since I was 15, mm-hmm. uh, but that seems to so far do the trick and has allowed me to kind of live my life uh, not be as restrictive <laughs> in my diet as I, as I should be, um, for, for this long and, and probably like stress can be a big trigger for Crohn's mm-hmm. too. And I've, I've experienced kind of moments where I was like, okay, this is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, stress is probably impacting my body a bit too much right now. Uh, but, but you know, the healthcare system has been there for me. It's kept track of me and, mm-hmm. um, what, what meds do you take for Crohn's and like, and what are those, what are those meds doing? So what I'm on is uh, Celafoc. I take about 600 milligrams a day, so two pills with every meal, essentially. And that is a anti-inflammatory. So Crohn's is like a inflammatory. Uh, as far as we know right now, there's some new stuff out on it, uh, but it, it creates inflammation mm. in your body and primarily in your, uh, your, your GI tract. Um, but it can also, you know, you can get inflammation in other places too, like your heart or, or other organs and oh, stuff yeah. like that. So this one... What I'm on would be a uh, like a, an anti-inflammatory that uh, targets the the lower lower GI tract and um, keeps the inflammation down, mm. you know. But other other meds, if if, if uh, you know the if the disease is more serious in people, and it certainly does become, you know, people people can die from from it. Yeah. Um, you know, steroids is is something they use, and there, there's there's a lot more. Uh, I think research coming out on like the role that bacteria yeah. play and, hmm. and stuff like that, that, which is interesting. That yeah. drug that you take is it is it uh, considered an immunosuppressant? It's uh, no, okay. I, I don't believe it is. No, it's just an anti-inflammatory. But 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 Crohn, like one school of the the kind of conventional wisdom on Crohn's is that it's it's a, an autoimmune disease, so it's right. your body attacking itself. But there is some new studies out saying that it might not that that's the crazy thing about like science and research and discovery it's like okay the (laughs) thing you thought was the case for all this period of time yeah uh really isn't and we have to uh you know otherwise otherwise we still be digging holes in people's heads to let the that's right that's that's the um that's the hardest part about like advocating for science especially like we we saw it obviously during the pandemic because scientists go and they speak about the research that they're doing and the things that they're discovering and they can never say 100 percent. this is like 100% 100% with certainty, for sure this will still be true 10 years and from now. And people want certainty. <laughs> and people yes. want that certainty. It, yes. I just saw a doctor from McGill write about uh, depression. And, mm. you know, the, the convention has been it's serotonin. Mm. Uh, so the, you know, the antidepressant pills, it's about increasing. Your, and this guy's saying like, no, actually, that's not what's happening at all uh, mm. with depression. I, actually, I think it was uh, linked to trauma and stuff like that. Yeah. Is what. Mm-hmm. And you guys just did the interview with um, I'm gonna I don't want Ma- Ma- yeah, Gabor, Gabor Mate. Yeah, Gabor yeah Mate. on the impacts of of uh, uh, of trauma. So anyway, you yeah. know that's the interesting thing mm-hmm. about science is it's you have to live in the world of and I'm not a scientist, so um, mm-hmm. but I listen to them. But, but yeah. live in a, live in a world where yeah. where certainty the best evidence. isn't guaranteed. You know, what do we have? Like what do we have at what do we have at our disposal right now? That speaks the loudest yeah. truth at the moment, and let's, so, and all, the good side is the science yeah. is challenging that truth at every single turn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 What um, what what you mentioned, you know, stress being something that can be a trigger for your Crohn's, and obviously you are in a high stress job. It can be. It can be. It can, it's it not. Can, it's not always. Not, like that, not right? always. And 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 that's interesting. Just be, I think because I would certainly kind of think that politics is sort of, is in that realm of always carrying at least a fairly high degree of stress. It's good to know that 
pressure, like pre- the, pressure, and, yeah. You know how you're interpreting that pressure, how yeah. your body's dealing with it. You know? Yeah, you, pressure uh, makes diamonds. Y- yeah, that's right. Brian's that's Brian's favorite. It's on quote. my yeah. I got cursive <laughs> writing on my wall. Yeah. Um. Is there a um? Is there a? Do you do anything like do you ex- exercise, meditation, whatever, anything in that kind of sphere for like managing mindset and everything? I I certainly try to exercise, and I'll get into points where I'm doing it every day. And feeling really good. And then like right now, <laughs> I've been in a period where I, you know, it hasn't been regular uh, enough, but yeah. certainly exercise is, is very mm. important for me. Diet, sleep, all the things that I don't pay enough attention to really, right. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but those things, uh, you know, certainly, you know, obviously don't, they matter for everybody and, and whatever, whatever mm. they're doing, it's how, how we'd be healthier. But I, I do notice a difference in terms of how my body's interpreting the pressure or stress if I'm sleeping well or. Yeah. But, what, about, but, what about therapy? Um, it's not something I've done regularly. I, I did, uh, I will admit, I did kind of seek some, uh, counsel from, uh, a professional, uh, at one point I had like one kind of, uh, meeting or appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something that I've done. Really. My wife does my therapy for me. <laughs> so I, you know, I go home and unload on, I'm also like a, an extrovert. So I, I yeah. process externally that can get you mm-hmm. into trouble in mm-hmm. politics, but, um, I've got a great group of friends uh, incredible partner and my wife, uh, Katie, who I can, you know, vocalize my, my thoughts, concerns, stress with, and, and, uh, you know, um, Brian's going to spend the next 15 minutes now trying to convince you that, uh, therapy is, uh, I I would say uh, honestly though, guys, no joke. (laughs) If, if there was a politician running who was like, uh, and also I think one of the pros to me is that I go to therapy. I'd be like, they'd fuck get, yeah, they get your, for you. they get your <laughs> singular vote. Well, I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a reference, uh, from you for sure. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Yeah. Gabor Mate. I'm sure he's real cheap. Uh, um. Honestly. And, uh, I mean, if, if people are listening to this and they haven't listened to our conversation with Gabor Mate and because it's, it's fresh in our mind, like I've been telling you guys, yeah. Taylor and Jared that. Hey, that, you don't need to uh, tell me, man. No, I, I, know. I know. I know. But I, I've been, I've been preaching about therapy nonstop for the yeah. last couple of years. And I, and I felt like he said the things that I wanted to say to describe it. In I a think way he that, changed Taylor's life. I he think de- he did. He, yeah. he, de- he definitely yeah. had a, a very deep impact on my thinking and definitely took, because I, I, I feel very much the exact, I feel very much what you just said. I, I go, I feel that I have really great friends that are, that are oh, like there to Thanks. listen and I process externally. And when things come up in my life, I very rarely hold them in. I, yeah. I process that with my wife, Kyla. I process that with Jaren Bry, my friends in my life. And totally. And, but did you do that when you were 12? No, right. Exactly. So, so, so this <laughs> is, so this is, so that's where, so that is where that conversation with Gabor really hit me was, was going, Oh, okay. Like I'm, I'm starting to see, and now I'm connecting the things like you didn't explain it as clearly. And then heck, obviously not, I'm not a 78 year old prophet doctor. And then talking to him, I started to think, okay, now I'm, I'm like, I'm reframing the things that you've told me that you've explained to me in a different way. And, um, and, and I think, and your daughter's going to be better off for it. So a hundred percent. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and reframing, and this is what, you know, we talk about this all the time is, is like reframing the idea of therapy in the sense that there's something wrong. And so I treat it versus, mm-hmm. you know, this is sort of like, and Ben Nempton actually said it the best, I think, uh, of somebody we talked to um, a couple of years ago on the podcast where he said, you know, you, you don't, you know, if you want to be a pro basketball player, you, you don't, you don't play in the NBA without having a great coach. And, yeah. you know, life is a hard game to play and it's, and it can be, 
extremely beneficial, if not necessary, to have a coach along the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times that that, that like impartial third-party coach can come from can be a therapist and it yeah. really kind of reframe things and, for me mm-hmm. and there it's funny though like he, there is a bit of a like the stigma i think is dropping but even when you asked me that i was like oh i'll admit to it you, like, exactly. yeah. yeah yeah so yeah, like, even yeah. In, like uh, you know i can say oh, the stigma's coming down but i i actually had like uh that kind of yeah. reaction yeah. to it and and but feeling, i feel like that's kind of a political like that that's sort of i feel like that's sort what of can ties be perceived into, like, as the, weakness exactly yeah. it t- kind yeah. of ties into like the political um, way of navigating a conversation where it's like, you know, when you're in politics, you don't want to, you don't want to say the wrong thing. You know, like you don't want to, you don't want to admit when you're wrong like that. Like that is kind of the way, the way that a lot of politics operate. And so that, that, that feeling of saying like, well, I'll, I'll admit that makes sense. But we, we, yeah. we were speaking to our friend the other day, who's um, a pilot a, in the air force. And, and he was telling us that like, if, if, if anybody in the service finds out that you've yes. been going to therapy, yes. then you're then you're, you're apt risk, to not get uh, you're promoted or your job. Be, oh, he yeah. said immediately. Yeah. yeah. If you right. said that you yeah. went that you sought psychological help, yeah. immediately, which is not, a, which is a gonna, real shame because you're not fly you know we're guys, talking about we're talking about people like trying to keep our country safe and and should be and, and you know that that's a you know that that's a fucking and keep real themselves safe while they're flying that's at right. Mach four yeah. Yeah, yeah like very very intense no i i do think it's uh, yeah a lot more work that needs to be done yeah. on that and well then to that point in terms of the work that needs to be done um you know you're you're now you're now a member of the opposition um it, i i don't know a whole lot about like how canadian politics work but let's say uh you know the next election uh liberals come back into power does does that mean that you will um, kind of be popped back into that role as Minister of Health, or or is there like sort of a all right, we're going to shuffle around, we're going to put you here, put you here, maybe this put you in this place you've never been? Like, how does that work um, if if the tables turn once again? So right now, I'm I'm the leader of the provincial Liberal Party. So if we were to win the next election, I would be become premier at that point. Oh wow. Um, and then the cabinet positions, so the, the, the ministers, those are appointed uh, by the premier and are uh, essentially accountable to the premier. Okay, so, the, cool. so, yeah, each party basically, so the way our system works, uh, each party has an internal election to decide who their, who their leader is. Um, and then the public obviously decides which party right. uh, by voting on their individual MLAs in their own ridings, how many seats. Yeah. Well, the, how many seats each party has is going to determine who's who forms government, and then the premier makes the decisions on on cabinet appointments, and then. So I suppose since you're races. in this role now, um, and you know, with with the potential of becoming the premier, you kind of have your finger on the pulse in every sort of department of what you know what changes are 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 happening, what changes should be you know happening in the future, <clears throat> and in terms of uh, the you know the health piece. Um, what are some things that you're seeing right now um, that you wish were moving forward a bit quicker or things that you feel like there could be more focus on that there isn't focus happening right Pre- now? Pre- preventative health care. So the, the, that's really where we need to shift our focus. Yeah. Like we are at a point where because of demographics, uh, you know, uh, having primarily aging population, although our, our population is getting younger now in Nova Scotia, we've got that you know, bulge of, of, you know, baby boomers, people from, mm-hmm. from that generation that just are naturally, you know, getting older and going to need more, uh, attention to their, to their health. The system is so stressed right now that all the resources are on the acute side. So yes. yeah. it's, it's always trying to catch up with the acute pressures that it's dealing with. Cause it's, it's, 
it's a lot more resource intensive, obviously, to deal with someone who has stage four cancer or, um, you know, a major cardiovascular event than it is to uh, deal with those things earlier on. So yes. I think we really have yeah. to get to a point where we are operationalizing preventative care. Uh, particularly, I think we've got to focus in the areas where we have high rates of issues here in Nova Scotia. So cardiovascular issues, we have a high rate. I think we still have the highest rate of lung cancer in the country. Oh, well. Oh, well. Early lung cancer screening yeah. could save a, a pile of lives here yeah. in Nova Scotia. So, and we catch, we catch, you know, lung cancer early. We catch, uh, you know, GI cancers early, stomach, bladder, um, prostate, all these things, right? Yeah. Like if we can, if we can get to a point where we are kind of operationalized early detection, um, this is not just going to, alleviate a lot of acute pressure from the mm. system it's gonna it's gonna help people be healthier and live longer and and save lives so mm -hmm. I, I really do think we have to kind of find some yeah. way to shift that focus it's not easy when the system is kind of in crisis and under yeah. constant uh pressure from a lot of different areas but we we do have to start thinking about about shifting are there any provinces there. that are that are kind of nailing that that preventative measure or not or it's, not it's kind of i mean as a whole I, I don't have like in-depth, I mean, I, we met with health ministers and I have a general understanding what's, what's happening. You try to keep, you know, pay attention to that. Yeah. But I mean, the, the system is not built to be focused on preventative yeah, care. Yeah, yeah. It's built to deal with, uh, with, 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 with the acute yeah. challenges that we have. Because obviously that you want to be able to deal with that stuff. When yeah. people are having a heart attack, you want to be able to try and save their life. When they, they've got later stage cancer, you want to be able to, to treat them as effectively as you can. Yeah. But uh, we, we really do have to start operationalizing is, the preventive is that some, stuff. Is that something that is, is that something that is like ubiquitously understood in terms of uh, like, obviously the personal, the, like the, the livelihood of people understanding that we want to, that we want to have people healthy and that's the most important part. But when you kind of back up and zoom out and think about it from the numbers game that, Kind of all of these big machines are, and healthcare being maybe the biggest one, of going. Preventative care is ultimately going to be the 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 money saver. It's going to be the tax the tax dollar saver. Like if we can get people more healthy before they get sick, then all that downstream cost goes down, and we all benefit as a result of that. Is that understood across the board of the political spectrum, or? And is it and is it just that getting to that place of preventative care is so hard because there's so much acute pressure on the system? Yeah. So the the pressure you're dealing with is kind of keeping up with the emergency rooms staying open, uh, with having enough paramedics on the road to to run the ambulances, to make sure that um, you know people who are having a major healthcare event. Um, are, are being are being treated. So that that's a pile of resources, a pile of pressure, and it does uh, obviously drive focus and attention and resources in that in that area. But if we can get the preventative side, and this is, I mean, obviously, people living healthier and and taking responsibility for their health is is key to that, and having access to recreational facilities mm -hmm. and trails and all these and and affordable food, <laughs> healthy yeah. food. Is, is important, but the system can also operationalize some of the stuff by um, doing early scans. So like we, we, you know, the, we've been doing better at doing GI uh, scans, you know, people get say, Hey, send your poop into the lab and, um, and we'll see if you have any issues kind of randomly that, that, mm -hmm. that probably saved the life of two people in my family. 
Wow. wow. You know, we have GI issues in, in my family. And so, you know, my, my aunt and I believe my uncle, because they were doing preventative either, you know, colonoscopies or the, the, the lab tests, uh, found what could have been later on, uh, mm. you know, a serious, serious issue. Mm. So we can, we can operationalize those things. Okay. You know what we're going to do? We're going to put this much money, um, for early lung. I, I think lung cancer screening really needs to be a big priority yeah. and, and, and cardiovascular, um, screening but those things that we can put some money in there they're, you know it's not just going to save resources it's going to save lives yeah it's going to save people you know and you're not yeah. going to have to potentially go through <laughs> very traumatic uh surgeries and chemo and radiation to to deal with these illnesses mm-hmm. if you catch yeah. them catch them earlier screening is like like i heard someone say uh i heard someone say not that long ago it might have been um um i'm totally blanking on his name uh, keith keith murray murray mm-hmm. keith. um who said something like, you know, every, no, every cancer is a good cancer until it moves. Mm-hmm. You know, every cancer, if, if it's detected, cancer in one place is treatable in, mm-hmm. in almost every form. It, as soon as it moves. It starts to spread. As, soon as, it, moves, as yeah. soon as it moves, that's the, that's the problem. So right. screening and getting to a place in preventative care with, you know, screening, you know, good screening, um, in, especially in the, most, mm-hmm. in the most prevalent cancers, you know, you're going to, you're just going to save so many and that's, people. And that's what we got to focus on, right? It's like, okay, we're, like you do have to have a cost benefit analysis. Okay. Well, how are we going to save the most people, save the most resources? Um, and I mean, lung cancer screenings as a yeah. no brainer here, that's the next step that we have to do here in our province. Cause we have such high rates of it. And it's not just because of smoking, like, um, yeah. no radon gas is yeah. the second leading cause of lung cancer. Um, uh, and it's everywhere in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah, I think you can get uh, free radon detectors at the library, right? Um, you can. I, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. I, like government, I'm almost positive. That's, where's the radon gas coming from, dude? All Uranium, over the place, everywhere. It's in the yeah. rock. Yeah. So it's uh, I, I okay. I'm not. I'm not a G. Uh, the cool thing about politics, you learn a lot. You're never really an expert in anything. But <laughs> kind of like, like podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Right. So like, you know, you get to learn a lot and, and try to communicate yeah. what you're learning. Yeah. But um, <laughs> essentially, I think it's when like your uranium kind of degrades in the rock and it creates oh. this radon gas that can get into people's basements if they've got cracks yeah. in their Dude, foundation. Oh shit. It's I, when real I was estate. a realtor for Big a time. bit. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, and so we had a map in our office that yeah. like, and, and basically everybody should be doing a radon test on a home if they're buying it. But, yeah. um, yeah. but particularly, um, down like the Rocky South shore from like St. Margaret's Bay. Yeah. Um, like on, Brady and Todd right it, now, like they, they, they're building property down by La Have and they they just got the radon radon detector to check it out because Crazy. Yeah. And, and you can deal with it. So mm-hmm. ventilation and and sealing, you mm-hmm. know, you sealing up cracks and stuff like that. You can you can deal with it. So it is something out of sight, out of mind, kind of. Thing, huh? <laughs> but you don't smell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it can be there, and you can yeah. you can be in your rec room in your basement for years, and you never smoked a cigarette in your life, and then all of a sudden you get a lung yeah. cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. so and you're not like, and you're not paying attention to it because you haven't been smoking, right? right. So, yeah. Yeah. so it's like enclosed spaces. If, if mm. it's open air, we're, it's it's probably know, in the whatever. open. Air everywhere, yeah. So and that's fine. Yeah, ish. It's, it's like if it's if the basement is the is the is the problem. Yeah, wow. Zach, I, I wanted to ask about um, we're in. There's this interesting thing that I'm starting to see pop up. Um, so I'm on a, the wait list for a family doctor. I had a, a family doctor. My family doctor that I was born with was in the delivery room when I was a baby, and was my family doctor up until two or three years ago. And then he retired. And so now I'm on, I'm one of these like hundred thousand people on the wait list. It's moving up to, fast right now to get a family doctor. Okay. That's, that's good to hear. 
no, no, no. The number oh, of people so, that need uh, a family doctor sorry, is moving up. It's almost it's almost doubled. It's almost doubled in the last year. Wow, and there's dude, a no, there's a number of reasons for that that we can we can well, talk. I'd love to get into them, but I'm also curious about. So Jer sent me this message about this um, private clinic that opened up in Dartmouth um, about a month ago, and they have this like subscription healthcare. Uh, this like healthcare subscription. You pay like twenty bucks a month. And you can go in and see a doctor. And every time you go see the doctor, it's like 20 bucks. And initially I was like, oh, that's amazing. I can go, I can go see a doctor. Um, but then I started to think about like, well, do I want to be supporting like a hybrid healthcare system? And you like, I feel like you I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, like, you know, we could eventually see a hybrid system in the future where there's more private healthcare clinics opening up. Um, but I'm I'm a big fan of public health care. I, I, I wanted to stay public and and be you accessible. To work, you wanted to work well. I wanted to work well. <clears throat> um, and so I'm curious for you, like, is this something that is coming up in conversation politically? Oh, totally. Yeah. And then the current government kind of indicated they'd be looking at more, more, more private care. But so the, where my mind's at is we do have to be open minded. Right. I, I uh, public health care is critical. We've, and I think we can make changes in our public health care system to better meet the needs of people, make it more efficient um, and and make it more effective in terms of, of treating treating people and giving them access, particularly to kind of primary and on, ongoing care. Uh, but there are private elements of our health care system. So pharmacies, for example, right. are private. So I do believe that we should be utilizing our pharmacists a lot more than we are mm. because they're trained on the medications like they yeah. know the medications better than anybody else yeah. in the system. They, we started to expand their scope of practice when we were in government. We, I don't think we got the economics right in terms of what they're being paid, but they can prescribe and 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 re re-prescribe. I think a lot more drugs than they're doing right now. Yeah. An example that would be like UTI drugs. I was just speaking with my <laughs> partner the other day, and um, I didn't know this, but um, you know, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> if you had a UTI, um, you would have to go see, uh, you know, go to a walking clinic, go see your family doctor get a prescription for the UTI medication, go to the pharmacy, get the medication. Um, but, you know, someone gets a UTI on a Friday night at like 6 p.m. and the clinics are closed. You got to wait the whole weekend. Or, or, that, try to, or try to go to an emergency room and wait 20 hours. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and you don't want to be there. And so, so they ended up, they ended up uh, changing it so that uh, you get a UTI. Now all you have to do is just go to your pharmacy, tell them, and they'll go, okay, here's, here's the medication that you need. Which like, you know, that, I mean, that's, that right there is huge. That's a perfect example. And it's, and it's not a two tiered system. It's, it's how everybody's accessing these prescriptions. So what, like a private, uh, public private healthcare system, I I do not think we can have a two tiered system. It's going to drain late. We have a labor shortage in the public healthcare system now. Yeah. So creating kind of a, a mirror, uh, private system that is going to be tailored to people that can pay for services is what they have in the states, and we can look at the healthcare outcomes there and access, and it's a big problem. Yeah. And at a at a moment in time when we have a uh, labor shortage in the public system, where are these people going to come from? Mm-hmm. To, yeah. to you know, people are going to leave the public healthcare system to work in a, in a private, more relaxed setting um, where they're dealing with like a different kind of clientele. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. so um, I I think we we can't necessarily be ideological on on healthcare. We have to be open minded. There are private elements, I think that makes sense to uh, get more out of pharmacies being among them. You know, not everyone uh, has a family doctor. Not every rural community is going to have access to a family doctor. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's pharmacies 
everywhere. They yeah. can also do order your blood work, order your lab tests, right? Yeah. Um, can they do that now, or that that's they, something that they, they have the they, ability to so do? So the can't. the we we did expand their scope to be able to do that, but I don't think they can make money doing that, right? Sure, now. sure. So sure. the I don't think the economics is yeah. makes sense on it for them. So you're not seeing it happen. Gotcha. So you've got to nail that, right? Yeah. Um, and that that hasn't happened yet, but like that's a private access point that I think is absolutely yeah. necessary mm-hmm. to deal with the primary, primarily the, the primary care pressure. So having access to a family doc, because yeah. the whole system is built to bottleneck patients through the family doctor practice, right? Mm-hmm. But doctors are being trained to practice differently. Um, less of them are getting into family medicine, and the ones that are tend to take a lot less patients than your doc, who sure. who just would have retired. Yeah. It was probably taking three to five thousand patients. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's 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 a lot, right? Yeah. And and yeah. it's probably better for patients if if docs are taken less. Yeah. But the system is built for this fee for service model that was, and and like the old school docs that were you know, uh, work primarily male male primarily. Yeah. So you know the the family's being taken care of a home and they can run a practice that they're working all the time and. Just- and churning out patient after patient and people after patient. people don't want to do that no. anymore and it's probably better for patients if there was enough yeah. uh to to for, for docs to have yeah. you know less less patients to deal with does but, that feel like an impossible task to get doctors for the amount of people who are on the wait list and you said it's going up like it's already at well, over well I, over a hundred thousand people i think we need to think more in terms of access to primary care Okay. And not yeah. just family practice, because yeah. I'm looking at the trends on that and we're going to be fighting it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we've, there's a lot of money going into recruitment for docs, uh, a lot of incentives in place. Everybody's chasing this from your, in Europe, uh, and all across the country here. Um, so I think we really need to kind of put our head into a, like, okay, we, people need, people need access to primary care. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Um, and where can these access points be? Yeah. Nurse practitioners have taken a lot of pressure yeah. off the system. Yes. Yeah. To be yeah. fair, there's um, three potential doctors in this room right now, yeah, yeah, and yeah. like maybe we just need we to just need that honorary degree. Yeah, yeah. yeah then, well, listen, yeah, I can prescribe <laughs> UTI medicine like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so easy. So so honestly, I can, I can interview people and find out you know yeah. what they're going through, and then I'm totally. you guys know I'm pretty good at like yeah. Taylor s- handles the money. we got this figured out, guys. I just before before we wrap there, Jerry, I know you're I know you're moving to that. I want to make just because you're here and you might be the premier and you'll appoint a health minister. I want it to be me. Uh, <laughs> you got to run. I just got to put, I just got to put one thing in your ear. Cause this is something we've, we, in, in recently we talked a lot. We talk a lot about addictions. We talk a lot about mental health and addictions um, and the opioid situation that's happening everywhere. Um, and, and something that has always stuck out is the amount of people that end up being addicted to prescription medication through a prescription. You know, they first come to they first come to that addiction through through, you know, taking pain taking pain meds for, you know, whatever their their surgery that they had. Um and then, you know, years later or months later they end up, you know, being in a really rough spot. And something that sticks out for me is when I broke my pelvis, got hit by a car, I was on Dilaudid and I received uh, a prescription for that and I didn't have I wasn't really told much about about what to do to come off of Dilaudid mm. and and I remember coming off of the drug and I went through some pretty intense withdrawal for about 24 to 48 hours and I thought to myself if I was if I was just a little bit different if my brain 
was organized just in a little bit of a different way, I can see how I would never stop. I would never want to stop doing this drug. And, um, and I'm wondering, and I don't know whose scope this falls under, but having a, a weaning protocol policy for whether that falls into the, uh, under the scope of like the pharmacist who is giving you the drug or the doctor who's prescribing it. Um, I feel like it's like a, a, a really easy, a really easy and sort and quite simple method that could reduce the amount of people that end up on these drugs because uh, that end up using these drugs in a really problematic way because it's the feeling of coming off of the drug that makes you want to go back to it. Not really the drug itself. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to put that there. So they're, they're, they're having a new strategy to deal with the addiction part of that question. Uh, and I think they're doing it in BC. I heard this on a podcast recently. Ooh. So they're moving from, I think we have to change kind of our, our, our mindset on what addiction is and, and how we handle it. And 100%. Like, today it's been like, okay, need to be cured. You've got to be sober. You've got to get Ooh. off this mm-hmm. when really that's probably not going to be no. the situation for a lot of people that are addicted to high potency, uh, you know, drugs like, like, like opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some jurisdictions, I think they're doing this in BC, they're looking at more of a harm reduction strategy yeah. where they're actually having uh, regulated, uh, creating regulated access points for people to get uh, the, the regulated uh, form of, of, of the drug mm-hmm. um, so that they can access what they need. Uh, without the stigma, with with without having, to, yeah, because I mean, I I mean, I, I've never, I'll hopefully, never be addicted to opioids. I did, I was on Dilaudid for a, a broken knee, mm-hmm. and it's intense. It is yeah. right, um, um, but I mean, I never, uh, I I didn't have any withdrawals or anything coming off it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably wasn't taking enough of it, but, um, you know, I think changing our our mindset and approach to addictions is probably going to be important. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, big time. And, and instead of it being like this idea where, you know, everything has to be cured. We don't cure all these diseases, right? We manage them. I've got Crohn's. I'm probably never going to be cured of Crohn's, but I take pills every day and that helps me manage it. And I think we have to think of addictions similarly where it is, okay, how do we reduce harm to people? How do yeah. we make sure they're not going to go look for needles on the street yeah. and deal with criminal elements of our society um, and, you know, particularly an issue for women that, that find themselves in very vulnerable situations, uh, mm. you know, the risks there in terms of what happens to them, uh, mm. with, you know, mm. you know, scary stuff that goes on there, uh, on the other side of the, 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 the drug equation. So, mm. you know, we, we got to develop some different strategies on this. And, uh, I think like the harm reduction strategy and the management strategy, seems at this point make a lot more sense yeah. than trying to say, you know, we're going to get everybody off this stuff and you're going to go to AA three times a day yeah. and that's going to deal with it. I, I mm-hmm. just, it, the, the evidence doesn't suggest that that's the best way to do it. No. Yeah. Especially after talking to Gabor yesterday and, and talking about how addiction is rooted in trauma. And so, <laughs> it, mm-hmm. I mean, if like, if the first step is, is access, having access to safe supply so that you no longer have to spend your entire day trying to figure out how you're going to get your mm-hmm. next, um, dose of of yeah. of choice drug, you can actually then start to have the time to address the trauma if that's yeah. you know the direction best you want to go and and, and think more broadly for people that 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 aren't addicted it can reduce criminality yes uh, right because uh, if you're yeah. not if you're not you know chasing down whatever however you can get this money to get your fix so you can avoid this major opiate crash mm-hmm. um, 
anyway, a lot of positives. I think uh, at this point, that's where my mind's at. Is like it's got We got to be looking more like harm reduction and yeah. management, safe supply. Yeah. Then totally. Taylor will vote for you if you do that. I'll vote for you if you go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm really open to the idea of therapy. Again, I, I did try it, and I, uh, I, I, I uh, you know, I. Yeah, I found. You got to send Brian the yeah. invoice. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm voting for you because you're on our podcast. So, <laughs> guys, this has been a real honor. I'm really. Uh, this has been uh, a lot of fun. I'm really thankful that you brought me on. Happy to come back if you ever want to chat about yeah. anything. And this yeah, was a really sure. uh, enjoyable and uh, hopefully meaningful conversation. Absolutely, yeah. This, I mean, you know, when we we uh, we had we had connected at Lawn Summer Nights earlier this summer and and made the decision to to bring you on at some point. I'm glad it happened because this has been a really Really fun and interesting conversation. So, Zach, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us. This was awesome. I really enjoyed this and appreciate your guys' time and get to know you a bit more. And congrats on all the success with this podcast. Yeah, I'm really proud as a Nova Scotian yeah. uh, to have you guys doing so well and yeah. kind of blowing up with this thing and being able to do it full time now. I think that's uh, really incredible. Thanks, and man. you're doing great work and yeah. you're a force for good in the world. So, thank awesome. you. Thank Thanks, you. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.